Action Park Media. Hello everyone. If you happen to have a boss, maybe you're in relationship with, ex-relationship with, friend, family member who is a narcissist, then you are going to want to set aside the next 45 minutes to take some notes because we are going to help you. Myself and Caroline, now she's from the UK. She's an expert in dealing with or breaking apart from and helping survivors who have been... Um, Victim of narcissistic abuse. Now, we don't call them victims, we call them survivors, but if this is you or perhaps you're living with a narcissist or someone around you, specifically covert narcissists, which are the most dangerous of all, they're the ones who uh, often play victim, who are doing puppeteering behaviors, who make you feel absolutely bonkers, gaslighting. It's a lot. I found this episode incredibly helpful. I hope you do too. This is Pretty Depressed with Caroline. So I am joined by the amazing Caroline. Now, I um, found her on Instagram because I myself are in a situation currently where I have recently had to learn about covert narcissists and I'd never heard of them beside the line in a Taylor Swift song. So I've got you here, Caroline, to try and I guess break down the difference between narcissists, covert narcissists, and then... um, why they can be problematic, moving into, um, (laughs) if we can't move away from them, kind of how we could work with them. So I guess the first place to be would be to start with what is a covert narcissist? Yeah, so I think probably even what is a narcissist, because probably like, I'd never heard of that. You know, I was in a 14-year relationship, 12 years married, and came out and got told, go and Google narcissist, and then found as we went through that he was a covert narcissist. And I was thinking, why have I never been taught this? Why has no one mentioned this? You know, when we're in school, we get taught about relationships and bullying, but nobody really teaches about what are abusive relationships in adulthood. So I kind of just thought he cheated, he said some things, and he did a few things, and I didn't piece it all together. And only when I started Googling it, it was like, oh. And of, of course, there are different types of narcissists as well. And, you know, in the coaching certification that I teach, I actually teach there's 10 types of narcissists. You kind of under umbrellas as such, we kind of think of the covert and the overt narcissist. So okay. it's probably easier to start with overt because that's probably what people would normally think a narcissist would be like. So an overt narcissist is really that person who commands attention when they walk into the room, the kind of look at me type of person, you know, looking like they're filled with self-confidence. Actually, narcissists are amongst the most deeply wounded individuals, but they don't look like that. They are literally there. There'll be a lot of political leaders that are overt narcissists because they're confident. They're not bothered really what anybody thinks. They think it's their problem, not theirs. And that's kind of what an overt narcissist is. So as I started to read this, that's kind of what I thought a narcissist was as well. And then I came across this covert narcissist, okay? And I started to read what a covert narcissist was, someone who acts like a victim, somebody who is very good at portraying themselves to be the badly done to party. Somebody in public can be the nicest person in the room and be caring towards you, 
And then behind closed doors, you could be crying and it's like they're watching paint dry. There's no emotion towards you. And they're just really disconnected in that moment. I know certainly for me with my ex-husband, Kim, that I always used to say, it's like you're living on another planet. It felt like there was no connection. And it was like I was seeking this connection all of the time. And in public, he was like this perfect husband, the perfect father and all of this. And what they're searching for, so covert narcissists are really, I would say, amongst the most dangerous kind because they really are like wolves in sheep's clothing. And it makes it really difficult when you've been in a relationship with a covert narcissist, whether a parent or even a partner, because people struggle to believe what you are saying because your portrayal of what they are is not what other people have seen. You know, they've seen this amazing husband, wife, you know, mother, father, whoever that may be. And it makes it really challenging. You feel, again, triggering your own attachment wounds, unseen, unheard, not believed. You're the crazy one. You start questioning yourself. And they're very good at manipulating um, other people's opinions of themselves, getting what we call flying monkeys. And flying monkeys are basically a term we use in sort of narcissist vocabulary that um, they kind of recruit these people to be on their side. And they can be from people you know when you're in the relationship or even people afterwards, you know. And so let me give you an example. So when I split up from my ex-husband, you know, if ever he went to pick the children up from school and I knew he'd been talking to other people, I'd want to go with a megaphone afterwards and go, can I just tell you the truth now about what happened? Because yeah. No, it would have been this manipulated version to get them to feel sorry for him. And um, I actually, I was my my ex-husband's second wife. I'm actually good friends with his first wife now, actually. Right. And, we both met him when we flew, actually. We both worked, we love traveling and, and everything else. And um, and I know from people I've spoken to about when he was still working, that he would go to work and take his wedding ring off. He would then go to work, because obviously I was at home looking after the children, and he would go to work and say, oh, I have to do everything at home. You know, my wife doesn't do anything. I have to go home and do the cleaning, look after the children, which I love to do. So, of course, the people that he was saying this to were like, oh, you're such a good father. You're such a good husband. You're so, so good, which, of course, was great narcissistic supply for him. It's absolutely not true. And, and that's what covert narcissists do. They will get others to feel sorry for them, to give them praise in a really, really covert way that you don't necessarily know. And the other thing about covert narcissists is they will say exactly what they think if they're in public or somebody else can gain something from them, what you want to hear. So again, let me give you an example. So when I split up from my ex-husband and once he knew I knew, as such that, you know, the abuse escalated even more. Yeah. And um, we were really struggling with navigating child contact, you know, on the occasions when my children were going to see him, they were coming back really anxious. You know, it, it just was not a good situation. And as much as I was trying to explain, and I really genuinely thought I could separate my emotions from him and the parenting, you know, and I think I, I genuinely did because I wouldn't stop him from seeing them ever. And, um, but it became really apparent we couldn't communicate. So I ended up having my friend tried it. 
Then my sister tried it to be like this mediator for us. And then my cousin, now my cousin is really savvy. You know, she'd been divorced before, very, very savvy. So she became this mediator for us. And I remember her. Um, she sat in the car one time, about half an hour, she was outside in the car talking to him and she came in. I remember her saying, I think I've got through to him. I think genuinely he was really open to it. Mm. You know, he really understood everything. And I was like, okay, let's see. And about two days later, because they were the ones texting, because I just hadn't watched, she messaged me and goes, well, that was a total waste of time then, wasn't it? Because they will, again, say the things that you want to hear in public. And, you know, they will be who they think you want them to be in that moment. But again, once they know, you know, yeah, it all goes out the window. So, yeah, they're very crafty. What is their goal? Like, what is their end goal? Do they have an end goal? Yeah, so any narcissist really is a deeply wounded individual. So as what we know from a research perspective is narcissists aren't born. They are created in childhood. We haven't found a narcissist gene or anything. Um, And it's all to do with, again, how they're parented, what their upbringing is like as well. And again, we don't know why then someone becomes, say, a narcissist or a codependent, um, someone who has a lack of self-love, but still pleases around that. So we don't know from a science perspective why that necessarily happens. We know the key environments that it happens in, though. So people, um, for instance, who are golden children, so everything is about them, you know, and a lot of, you know, family dynamics, we think, well, it would be great to be a golden child because you get everything that you need. But what you learn then is your love from your parents is conditional on something. So if you're not then having somebody say you're amazing and you're this and you're that, then they feel unloved and it's a wound that they have within them. And, um, you know, it's the same with a covert narcissist scapegoating. So again, it could be neglect. It could be, um, you know, a form of physical abuse, sexual abuse even. Um, And that can lead to what we call these emotional wounds of feelings of unworthiness, you know, not good enough, unlovable, not important, worthless. This creates an emotional wound. And then we don't know why then someone becomes a narcissist necessarily from that, but we know that it happens. We know that brain changes start to happen when we've done fMRIs on adults who are narcissists. We can see on the odd occasion when we know if they're a diagnosed narcissist, so to speak. Um, But they're really emotionally wounded. And as human beings, we're built for survival sadly not for success or happiness you know we've got to be intentional for that the number one role for us as human beings is survival so if we have this core emotional wound that felt really painful as a child everything for our nervous system becomes about not feeling the pain of that wound so a narcissist way of not feeling the pain of that wound is to have lots of these what we call protector parts coming up that can be things like gaslighting coercive control manipulation anger addictions even all the while trying to distract from their own core wound. And those protector parts of a narcissist really become their false sense of self. That becomes who they are. For a codependent, for instance, who is a magnet to a narcissist, they would have protector parts like people-pleasing, perfectionism, for instance. But there's still an element of self diagnose Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you on that. And, um, you know, that's what makes us a magnet to a narcissist because we have an emotional wound of not feeling good enough, but our way of minimizing that wound is to please others. 
A narcissist way of minimizing their emotional wound is to get somebody else to do that for them as well. So, you know, the, the codependent will give, 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 and the narcissist will take, take, take. And initially at the start of a relationship, it's a match made in heaven because it's a win-win for both. You know, they're both equally, you know, minimizing the pain of each other's wounds. The problem arises is when, you know, you may start questioning the narcissist, particularly when they're a covert narcissist. You know, there's this public persona in the private private persona and you start asking questions, you know, things maybe you're being gaslit because you say, well, I saw that, well, that didn't happen, or you're so sensitive. So you start to doubt yourself with all of this. And this is then when the trauma bonding occurs because we get addicted to that cycle of abuse, the dopamine and the oxytocin in the moment of them love bombing and being really, really nice to us. And then in the discard phase, when maybe you're challenging them, the cortisol and the adrenaline, that cycle of hormone secretion, we become physiologically addicted to. And that's what we call a trauma bond. So the covert is really somebody who in public portrays themselves as a nice person, really. You know, they're hard to, covert narcissists are hard to spot, um, but they can act very victim-like, which equally I know sometimes codependents do, um, because again, we're trying to soothe the wound in all of this. But the, the intention of the narcissist is at any means, any way, if it hurts you, it doesn't matter, I'm still going to do that. Whereas a codependent will recognize the subjective distress you know, they will, if they hurt somebody, they'll take ownership and responsibility. A covert narcissist won't take ownership. They'll say, well, if you didn't do that, I wouldn't need to do this. And so there's that, that different dynamic to the relationship. Mm. Oh my God, so many ding, ding, dings that I'm thinking about here. What is the, um, the, like, there's an importance of self-preservation of people liking them or thinking that they are uh, the victim in any situation. How conscious or subconscious is their behavior? Is everything calculative? Because it feels that way. Everything feels very puppeteered. Yeah, really, really great question. And again, this is really, it. like you say, it looks like it, right? It looks like they're doing it on purpose. And in some ways they are, but the primary intention of a narcissist is to minimize their own wounds. Like I say, they're deeply, deeply wounded individuals, a complete lack of self. They are codependent themselves at the core. You know, they hate themselves. And then this narcissism is their way of projecting their pain outwardly because the alternative for them is to project it inwardly and that would be unbearable to them. So the primary intention of a narcissist is to minimize their own pain by any means. Of course, that would look like then they're doing it on purpose, they're doing it really calculatingly. But again, mm -hmm. this is their nervous system driven to minimize their pains. The secondary part of their primary intention is, of course, it's gonna hurt somebody those that are going to receive it in a way that they're seeing it as a reflection of themselves. So for instance, take my ex-husband, for example, his primary intention all of the time is to not feel his own emotional wounds. So his behavior, cheating, gaslighting, you know, financial abuse, manipulation, all of these things may look like they're doing it on purpose, but actually they're doing that because it's, it's less painful for them to project that outwardly onto me. 
The problem being is, how do I receive that projection? Now, if I'm coming from a place of emotional wounds, which I was, they're not feeling good enough, I receive that projection of their pain as a reflection of me. So I need to fix it. I need to make it better because the narcissist is behaving like this. My husband's being like this, not because he's a narcissist, but because I need to do more, be more. It's my fault. I need to fix it. So I receive their behavior in a way that it's triggering my poor wounds. So I'll try and fix it and please and fawn and rescue. The key to this is the narcissist will never change. The power for us as survivors is about why do I receive it like that? So for me, it came from an I'm not good enough wound that came, which came from my childhood and my father, which meant my version of love was feeling not good enough in a relationship and people pleasing, perfectionism, high achieving, you know, surely if I was all of those, then my dad would praise me, which never came. But that then made me a magnet then because I was this, you know, high achieving, people pleasing perfectionist to a narcissist, you know. And of course, because they are attracted to someone like myself who are going to please They say all the right things to me, almost like it's a corrective experience in the beginning, saying all the things that my dad never said. So it was filling this great big hole in my soul. So maybe I am good enough then. Again, I'm looking for external validation. So again, from a trauma perspective with this, from from me getting my power back, it was really changing my somatic experience of my childhood from one of not just I know I'm good enough because I knew I was good enough when I look back, but change the somatic experience, know and feel I'm good enough, meaning those parts don't need to show up to minimize that wound, meaning I could be in a room of 100 narcissists now and it wouldn't cause any activation because I know it would be about them, not about me. That's a great place to get to Um, (laughs) because the situation that I'm in and people I know are in, um, the option of removing that person from life completely is not actually an option. Um, So I wondered if you could speak to if someone has cut the tie as and is no longer parented or relationship in actual relationship with the narcissist, but still has to engage with them. The kind of behaviors that I'm seeing pop up from um, myself as a victim or others as a victim is still this eggshelling kind of walking around, still not poking the bear, still trying to manage that. Is that a normal trauma response? And how do we get better from that? Um, How do we sympathize with, because obviously someone else I know is going through this too, and it's quite hard to not feel anger or frustration towards the still need for the approval from the narcissist is yeah so sorry that might be a lot to unpack but I completely understand and the first thing I would say is I don't call people victims okay sorry yeah Uh, survivors sorry yes only because when we call someone, I mean, in the strict encyclopedic term, yes, we've all been victims of the No, no, I want to make sure I label it correctly because you're right, that doesn't empower someone and it just then repeats that same behaviour of poor me. So I always talk about like victimised by a narcissist. You are a survivor. You've had abuse. What you're holding now in your body is trauma. Trauma isn't a life sentence. You can heal trauma. So really the narcissist, so when you're saying about anger and frustration and all of these things, I see these as as protector parts because I do internal family systems. So these are all parts of us, again, really where the narcissist is highlighting 
core wounds that we already have. So, you know, our nervous system is at the heart of our lived experiences. So when we're not coming from a place of social engagement, calmness, connectedness, and we move into a trauma response like fight, flight, or freeze, our nervous system will react in a way to try and protect us. So for instance, when we're in a fight, flight response, we will produce more cortisol, we will feel more edgy, we'll feel like we're really buzzing almost, but we can't sit still. And that's actually our body reacting to our perception of danger, because we're not actually in any danger. Our perception of danger in anticipation of either fighting or running away, because we would need that. If we, if we were being attacked, we need that. We need the cortisol and adrenaline to fight the perpetrator or the aggressor away or someone who's attacking us, or we need to run away to try and get safe. The problem being is, as human beings, we also have this prefrontal cortex, front part of our brain, where we overthink things and we start to add different meanings to things. So our version of someone attacking us is feeling not good enough or feeling unworthy or feeling unlovable because that takes us back to a pain in our childhood that felt unbearable. Mm. So everything then becomes about that. So the narcissist then, if they're about or they do anything what or say anything, what they're doing is they're triggering our perception of danger because our version of danger is like picking the scab off that wound of not feeling good enough. Now, in those moments, when we're feeling edgy, if the day, if our nervous system th- still thinks the danger is there, we'll go into a freeze response because our nervous system works on a hierarchy. We can't, and I call this the traffic lights of tolerance in the work that I do. So we have a green light, which is when we're safe and connected and present. Then we have the fight flight, which is part of our sympathetic. We're no longer in the present moment. We've gone back to past experiences and reacting in the moment. And then we go into the red light, which is freeze and what we call our dorsal vagal part of our nervous system. And when we're in freeze, we'll we'll literally numb out many people that I work with. And again, you may be able to relate to this or even maybe your friends. You go very numb. You feel very disconnected from your body. So you're in a freeze response, but you have a very high sympathetic charge trying to come through because your body wants to heal. You know, you want to kind of heal. But because, again, we have this prefrontal cortex, uh, if we just were left to our own devices and took our prefrontal cortex away, we'd go into freeze in the moment if we thought it was dangerous. Then we would go back into fight flight, shake a bit off of the trauma and the, the response, and then we'd go back to the green line. The problem being is because we feel like if we're in freeze, which can look like we're conforming, can look like, you know, things are okay. um, The moment our body wants to heal and we start to shift because we have to go through the hierarchy back into the fight flight because we have to process the fight flight and discharge to get back to feeling safe. The moment we start to feel the edginess, to start to feel anger, to start to feel that kind of fight flight energy, lots of things can happen. We might start to think we're like them and we're showing that. People might judge me and think I can't cope. So what we do is the moment we start to feel that sympathetic charge, we may explode, but then we'll push it back down again. And this then in the long run leads to chronic illness and disease because people are living in what we call a functional freeze. They're literally in a freeze response, functioning, but they're still pumping out cortisol. They're in this freeze response. There's a high charge, but they're either exploding and then they're shutting it down again. And then in the long run, this is why we have so many people with autoimmune disorders, IBS, things like fibromyalgia, 
as a consequence of suppressed trauma because they're not giving space to actually feel it in a healthy way. And that's what is a huge problem when we talk about trauma in general as well. I guess that's so interesting because if a covert narcissist is quite hard to spot and I only happen to know about it because someone else went through it and it was this idea of, yeah, someone who is one way to everyone else and then just completely the opposite, you know, and then if you're left feeling confused, which I think is probably the most common feeling um, and they still want to defend them or, you know, or, or take it upon yourself, that trauma will find a way to come up. And yeah, it's... You just, if you're still in the relationship, like I did, I probably lived decades in my, in freeze. Um, you know, I was just numbed out because I'd lost, completely lost my sense of self. It wasn't safe to be me because every time I was me, if I went back to my childhood, that was when I didn't get any praise. I didn't get the love. So that created that wound. So if you're in a relationship with a narcissist, when you're in it and they're still behaving like that, you just completely lose yourself. It doesn't become safe to be you. So your nervous system goes into shutdown, you dissociate and you're literally in freeze in that relationship. And then when you come out of that relationship, you know, you might start to try and heal a little bit, but to actually fully heal, we need to discharge and process that sympathetic energy as well. We can't just go from freeze to feeling safe again. We have to process it. But so many people struggle with the discharge of that sympathetic energy because they think they're aggressive. You know, they think that they're like the perpetrator, the covert narcissist. They think people will think they can't cope or they may think that they can't cope because they're just angry all of the time. But there is a way, again, either doing one-to-one work or group work in this scenario where you can, it's called healthy aggression. So we want to process that part, but in a healthy way. So you think almost like your nervous system, like a container. I've got all of this sympathetic energy that needs to go somewhere. But what people do is they keep pushing it down. But every time you push it down, you're making your own container smaller. So it feels even more bubbly underneath, like you're saying, on eggshells or edgy, or you can't sit still. You're just like wired, but you're still in a freeze, but a really high sympathetic wanting to come through, but you're not allowing it to come through because it seems even more dangerous to come through. If you think of it like a wild animal, if a if an animal is being chased, say, by a lion, that animal might go into freeze, so it goes really, really small. Okay, it's hiding from the lion. The, to get back to feeling safe, it would need to pass through the sympathetic, which would mean it would need to become bigger again. So in theory, if you think about that from a human perspective, if we become bigger again, that means people are going to see us and we could be at risk of being hurt again. So if you think about it from an animal perspective, which we are too, we try and stay really small when we're in freeze. We're literally, it's just about our major organs staying alive um, as opposed to the fight flights. So, and the covert narcissist makes that really difficult because, you know, if you're in freeze and then you're trying to tell somebody and even little noticing of their faces where they go, are you sure they're like that? Were they tired? I imagine them being like that. That's going to make you abandon yourself even more. Is it me? Must be me. I'm not good enough. And it puts you into freeze again. So you're back again. And then you start to isolate yourself from friends and family too, because you feel shame, you feel judged, and you just want to isolate yourself away. Is it common practice of a uh, survivor, um, from a narcissist to still seek their approval. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
Yeah, so that's the trauma bond. So okay. the trauma bond in that moment, and it probably took me a good few years to break my trauma bond. I wish I knew now what I knew. Yeah. And um, so, the, like I say, we become addicted to that physiological release of those hormones. So even though when I spit up from my ex-husband, I know, don't you contact him, don't answer the text, don't look, don't, 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 don't. Cognitively, I knew that my body was craving the hormone secretions. So if he texts me, this was before I had extreme modified contact. So if he texts me, it was almost like, oh, right. And it was like, and even if it was a horrible text, my body was filling with cortisol and adrenaline. And whilst I knew I didn't want to feel like that, my body was going, ah, oh, there's the fix. This is what we know because it becomes your version of safe. It becomes what your version of feeling safe in a relationship is. So I was seeking out that rush of the addiction because it is an addiction to the cortisol, the adrenaline. And of course there, there's hope at some stage, they may be nice and everything, but of course, very, especially when you've split up, it's very unlikely that that's going to happen when you get to a certain stage. But it, so just because you split up doesn't mean your physiology isn't craving the hormone secretion. On that. So sorry, two key questions that I'm like, oh, don't forget them. Don't forget them are, um, what would be typical behavior of a covert narcissist if their person now does move on, find someone else and is happy? What would be a really typical response of a covert narcissist? Because I think that'll help some people kind of frame it if they are or were questioning. Yeah, two, two things really. There can be one or the other. The drug of choice for a narcissist is what we call narcissistic supply. So they consistently need somebody, okay, to be minimizing their wounds. Now, if you have found somebody else and they haven't, haven't yet found somebody else, you're going to see probably an escalation. You might start to see love bombing. They're going to try and get you back. They're going to suddenly say, I've changed. I'm in therapy. I'm this, I'm that, or anything else, because they're want, going to want you to give them the narcissistic supply at the end of the day. Um, if then you're still discarding them, watch how the abuse escalates because you at that stage are their only form of narcissistic supply. And I always say the more abusive a narcissist is, the more deeply their wound, their inner wound is bleeding at that stage as such. The other side of the coin is they may well find somebody else. Very often I would say if a narcissist leaves the relationship and they're the one to leave, they absolutely will have somebody else there, 100%. You know, they may say they don't, but they will. They'll have somebody there. So if they've got somebody there, it will minimize how much they're trying to get supply from you. I always know. What, what, what is that end goal? If it was the situation of number one, will they just try anything and everything to get that Absolutely. supply? Hundred percent. Think of them. Think of them like a toddler. You know, if a toddler wanted some sweets, for instance, they're going to go through this array of emotions to try and get them. Mummy, I want some sweets, please. No, you can't. Mummy, I want some sweets, please. No, you can't. Mummy, I want some sweets, please. They will. They will adapt. Remember, their primary intention is to minimize their wounds, so they will show up in any way they possibly can to get the narcissistic supply that they need. And they could try many, many different things to get that. Yeah, the tactics are quite fascinating, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. They will try anything because they need to minimize the pain that they are feeling inside. Because they're remember, they're deeply wounded. They will feel rejected and abandoned and that will be a massive trigger to them. So they may try and love bomb and be nice, but if that doesn't work, you watch how quickly they turn nasty. 
And how do you empower people? Because <laughs> I know this is probably a lot of information for, I guess the people who haven't experienced this is probably switched off and the people like me are like, ah, oh, you're speaking with such clarity and delight. Thank you. It's really helpful. Mm-hmm. How do you empower people then to, like what would be your top tip? If you are experiencing someone that you have put a boundary, you have pulled away and they are really intentional about trying to get their narcissistic supply from you, what would your tips for that person be to empower them? Because it's a really hard, it's almost like if they're escalating so much, I can understand why people try and placate them or try and be nice to them or, yeah. And that, this is um, really environmental initially. So when the trauma bond is still really, really strong, because although people still leave and they know they don't want to go back, if someone's trying to love bomb them or behave in a certain way or even being abusive, you know, there's still the pull back to them, whether it be the love bomb or whether it be the abuse side of it, there's still that addiction pull back. So really somebody needs to want to do it as a starting point. And again, because I know many people leave, go back, leave, go back. And this isn't about judging them that do that either. It has to be right. It has to be safe. Safety is a priority with this as well. But let's say somebody has left and they're still kind of getting messages or things like this. This is really an environmental element to this. This is literally blocking. Unless you have children and you have to set up, I always say set up a completely different email address, buy a different phone. So it's completely separated from your everyday stuff that you're seeing all the time. Because otherwise it's like your nervous system is literally on edge waiting for the text or waiting Mm -hmm. for the email. And almost wanting it as well because of that trauma bond. So we literally want to create an environment where we're blocking all on social media, not a sneaky profile where we can go and have a sneaky look to see what they're doing either, which I know is tempting. Literally blocking on everything. And if you don't have any children or any commitments to them, literally setting yourself up for success. Asking your friends and family to say, look, I'm in a healing phase now from my relationship. I don't know. I don't want to know what they are up to. Don't tell me, you know. And and again, if you have children, we would set up extreme modified communication. And again, I would still be saying, you know, tell your friends and family. You don't, unless it's something that you can use as evidence, maybe in court for a court case around finances or children, you don't want to know. Just literally. And I'd say, you know, 30 to 45 days you're going to break that trauma bond and you would be on the road to recovery more than as well. And then it's holding your boundaries with that. You know, very often our boundaries have become very, very blurred because of being, you know, people pleasers and things yeah. like that. Um, and and this is about just doing the best you can. You know, I tried this many, many times and, you know, failed initially, but that was because my nervous system wasn't ready. So I needed to be doing inner work at the same time for myself so that I knew I was good enough. I didn't need him to tell me that I was good enough then as well. So a combination of environmental and keeping on doing that inner work yourself, grounding yourself. Sometimes it might be taking one hour at a time to start off with checklist. Hey, I've done an hour. Great. I've done this hour. Grounding yourself, feet on the floor, checking around the room, engaging your senses, staying as present as you possibly can. Because remember, the moment we're being dragged back, we're in trauma responses. We're no longer in the present moment. We're driven by past experiences then. Yeah, that's a tough one because I think when you try and do put up boundaries, like the only form of communication needs to be this way or that way, then they push back on that. And then they do. But this is where if you have to have some communication. So I would say to my clients, 
set up a completely separate email address, literally, and it's only them. And you send an email and say, this is our form of communication moving forward. Here's the email. And then you block on that email. We don't wait for them to reply and say, well, I'm not doing it. We block. If they want to communicate, that is the only form of communication. You put it in a different app on your phone. Do you actively have to go in and check? And I would set times each week to go and do that. So you're not constantly checking with your mobile phone. If you have to have some form of communication, I always say go and buy like an old cheap Nokia phone or something, you know, where it takes like 10 years to write hello kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That is purely for if there's children involved, if they have the children and it's an emergency, there's a phone that they can call you. But if you have the children, that goes off, it goes in a drawer. The moment, obviously, when they go to, you know, your ex, then you can put that emergency phone on. There's still email contact through that email address, but it's very controlled. The communication is controlled. You know, it's not like WhatsApp or Messenger or anything else. They are blocked on everything. You do not reply unless it's through the, the Nokia phone or it's through that email. And, and, and again, that will be having a good ecosystem around you because it's going to feel tough to start off with and having that support. You know, I often say to my clients when we're in this phase, when you if you get something and you feel like you want to reply, reply to me first. Let's talk it through first and then I can help ground them, get them back into a sense of presence. If they feel like they need to respond, I'll say, write what you would respond, but send it to me. So you're still honoring your body and what you want to say, but we're not actually fueling it and inflaming the situation by sending it to the narcissist. Woof. Okay. Um, (laughs) So many things. Uh, Okay. That is extremely helpful. And then sort of uh, lastly, before I wrap up, how... How should people support someone who has walked away? Like what are some things that are good to do and not good to do? Perhaps you find yourself in relationship with someone who has been through this season of life, is going through the season of life. Perhaps it's a sister, a friend. Like what is helpful and what is not helpful behavior to walk them through? And most people have the bestest of intentions to want to support their friends and family. But it's just so hard to not want to, and I imagine as the person as well, to not then want to go and defend yourself to others if you know that this person is poisoning the well in which you live in. Like it must be. It is really difficult. And, you know, friends and family who have people they know that are going through all of this can sometimes inadvertently gaslight even further and they will become even more isolated. If we take, we don't want to judge, you know, we need to understand these are not conscious choices that have happened. They're driven by their nervous system, but we know there will be a core wound for them of not feeling good enough. So it's just holding presence for them. Hey, is there anything that I can do for you? Not don't act, don't reply to them. Don't do this. Don't do that. Because if they then do that because of the trauma bond, they're going to feel a lot of shame and judgment around all of that as well. You know, so it's really just about holding space, being there. You know, is there anything I can do to support you right now? You know, it's not offering advice unless it is asked 
for. You know, if they say, what do you think I should do? You Then you can say, I would always say, well, what do you think you should do? Because it's about engaging them to find some trust in themselves again to do that. You know, we don't want them to then become codependent on somebody else. We want to help empower them. But equally, we don't want to say things like, you know, I had a friend who, um, again, it, it just really made me feel even worse than I did because my, my ex-husband had multiple affairs. And she said to me, oh, if my husband ever did that, I'd chop his you-know-what off, okay? Um, I wouldn't have him. He'd be out the door so, so fast. But by nature of her saying that to me, I knew I shouldn't stay with him, but we had a family together. We had a house together, you know, children together. And I did stay numerous times that I stayed. So I felt she was judging me. I felt weak. I felt stupid. And that actually made me want to isolate myself even more because, of course, I was going into protection mode for me, not wanting to be around somebody who was judging me because that was triggering my wounds even further. So we, so again, I know her intentions were kind of, you know, that was just her in the moment. But actually, that's not trauma-informed language. That really made me feel even worse with her saying that. So it's just holding space and recognizing, you know, I'm here regardless. You know, you go back, you stay, whatever, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere regardless. And that is massive for somebody because then they don't feel judged and you are more likely to be able to support them through this then as well and actually help them even more if you do that. And is besides the blocking and cutting off the, their food supply, I guess, as we call it, which I love having that as a visual for me, um, I mean, the, the behavior just is, escalates to such a, an absolute chaotic level. Is there a peak on that or will it just until they get what they want from wherever they want? I'll just keep. At, some, at some stage, they will have to go and find someone else, you know, and sadly, it will be someone else. They will go and, and seek out um, all of that. You know, you can only protect yourself in all, all of this. So, yes, it will peak at some stage. But if you set everything up, you may not know what, what's happening anyway. And ultimately, yeah. it's the blinkers on your lane focusing on yourself. They could be going crazy. And I get it. They could be going around saying whatever they want, especially covert narcissists, because they're the victims still in all of this. You know, they could be going around, feel sorry for me. Again, this is about your ecosystem being reminded, this isn't you, you are amazing. And, you know, you are good enough. And, you know, this is their stuff. And if other, and you've got to remember people who believe what they are saying, are probably just like you at the start, you believed what they were saying as well. It doesn't so you know you tend to find flying monkeys fall into two categories one they actually do believe it because they're so convincing or they but they act like they believe it because they're so worried like with a bully if I don't act like I don't believe it they're going to come after me as such so I'm just I'm going to agree with you so totally so so it doesn't mean it's true just because you see it again just reminding people just because that's happening doesn't mean it's the truth Mm. and you you do believe that it's not something that's handed down genetically. It's, it is. Yeah. Okay. So that's very much, it's not from a gene perspective. What can be passed down is parental behavior. You know, you will tend to find, obviously, if you have a narcissistic parent, it's likely that their children will be a narcissist or a codependent as well, unless one of the parents has done the work. So for instance, if I hadn't have done all of my inner work, the likelihood is because I had 
pretty much all contact with my children, they'd have both become codependents as well, because I would be seeking out my sense of worth from being a mom. So I would have created a need in them to need me so that I would be worthy. But obviously I did my inner work with this and now I have two, you know, amazingly independent or interdependent um, children um, with that, even though they have a narcissistic father. So I have healed my codependency. Yeah. They will always be a narcissist. So, and, and again, my ex-husband's married now. He's got children, two other children as well. And again, that's that that cycle, unless there's another cycle breaker there, will continue down that line. Wow. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I mean, you are so articulate in this space. I love everything that you do on um, Instagram. I think it's so helpful. Um, one of my questions is, is it a trait of covert narcissism and narcissism in general to not be able to accept feedback and to always need to win? Like, I just feel like that something that I am newly aware of is that they have no, it's almost, and I maybe I'm using the wrong word, not lack of empathy, but they're quite happy to stay in yuck for quite a long time, whereas us uh, maybe who are receiving it want to fix. And so often we'll cower or we'll, whereas oh. they, it feels like they have no sense of time. They're quite, and, until someone apologizes. <laughs> Absolutely, because they want to win. To them, it's win or lose. There's no gray area. There's no compromise. There's no healthy communication. You know, if you're doing something that they don't like or they disapprove of, or it means that it's triggering their wounds, it means they've lost. So they need to win again. They need, they will show up in certain behaviors like that um, too. Mm. They do have a complete lack of empathy. You're absolutely right. It's definitely a trait of narcissism, but they can fake cognitive empathy. So they can fake empathy if they're in public looking like, you know, I was really poorly one time and and I, you know, I I knew I wouldn't be able to look after the children. I was really, really very ill. And I was saying to my husband, you know, you need to stay at home. I can't look after the children. And he was, and and he took, I mean, literally a couple of hours before he said, okay, then I'll, I'll call work. But it was like, I was crying. I was poorly. And it was genuinely like he was watching paint dry, no sympathy, no empathy for me whatsoever. When my parents came over the next day and I was really poorly, are you okay, Caroline? Can I get you something? So of course my parents were like, oh, isn't he a good husband kind of thing? Because again, he'd got an audience So they can fake cognitive empathy, but empathy, like we know empathy and really feeling into all of that. If someone's hurting or upset, they don't feel that. They're totally disconnected. It is about winning because if you think from a developmental perspective, their development has stopped in childhood for that. So just like a child, win or lose, everything's black or white. You know, you win, you lose, you're loved or you're hated. There's no middle ground with this. Like as adults, we know, you know, that there's lots of middle grounds that we can have from a healthy communication perspective. Narcissists don't, don't have that. It, it, it is literally about winning to them because if they lose, it's triggering their wounds. So they'll go at all costs. Their primary intention is to minimize that pain. Okay. So if people like me are like, well, obviously got some inner work to do and people I know have some inner work to do. Um, what kind of services do you offer? Because it, I mean, and I, I'm sorry that you had to go through this, but I feel like you've done the most beautiful thing about making yourself um, upskilling and available to help people. Cause it is, you really are one of like the only person I could find who offers this so thank you for the work you're doing how can people work with you or what kind of you know information do you have or you know for people to reach out (laughs) 
so again, when I started my business, it was really important because I had no money. When I split up from my ex, he left me with nothing and I lost my home, literally everything. So I know some people have no money and I get that. So it was really important for me when I set up my business, like my Instagram account, I have a podcast, my narcissistic abuse and trauma recovery podcast. Um, I have a free Facebook group, support group. We vet every single profile. We get 200 people trying to join a day and we don't approve 100. You know, we literally have a team that we check every profile. So we have a really good free support group for people as well on Facebook. Then I've got low cost programs. So I have some healing codependency programs. That's like just under 50 bucks. I've got a narcissistic trauma recovery program. That's like a 12 step program. That's got EMDR in, brain spotting, IFS, you know, meditations, really understanding your attachment styles and the beliefs that you may have. And and that's $549. Again, low cost, but you're part of my membership, which is called Thrivers. That's $7 a month. I go live every week where you can ask me directly questions. It's like having me in your pocket. And then of course, I've got some higher end stuff where it's just working closely one-to-one with me as well. So, you know, there's something for everybody with where they are at. And it was really important that wherever you are, you know, you're not on your own and you know that there's hope, you know, that that's definitely, you know, that I want to get across because I get it. Not everyone's going to be able to afford anything, but come and join my group, come and follow me on Instagram. Just know that there's people out there who understand and you're not on your own. Hmm, That's so helpful. Yeah. And, and even just defining what one is, because you're right, it's such a curious one, the COVID. It's a little harder to spot unless you've really seen behind the curtain. Correct. Those, you know, yeah. They are. They're very, very sneaky. And, and I do a, a narcissistic trauma-informed coaching certification. And part of that is my narcissistic abuse specialist. And um, yeah, I teach about 10 different types of um, narcissists and they're all in sort of different subcategories, you know, sort of um, like a somatic narcissist is someone who really focuses on their um, appearance all of the time, for instance, you know, so there's there's different elements to all of that um, as well. So, but it's important for people to know, you know, it's not their fault. You know, these are people, sadly, who will always be narcissists. They, they always will, but they're deeply wounded and everything becomes about protecting themselves. So really for us, it's about how do we receive their projection of their pain? Because we can change that. That's the part we have the power in. Yeah. It was funny. I was like, I was a little nervous about doing this podcast because I was like, oh, you know, there's a there's a couple in my life. And I was like, what if they find out? And then I was like, oh, they would never even look to think that this would be about them. You know, often on Instagram, because I don't really go into the medicalization of them because it's right. I, I do a lot around um, you know, it's non-pathologizing because I do IFS. It's a lot about, you know, the collection of protector parts an individual has we could call a narcissist. But every time on Instagram, I say things like you can't cure a narcissist, you know, I always get, you can't say that about human beings. And I'm like, well, there's no evidence that that happens. And, you know, by saying, in fact, someone said to me the other day, oh, no, I work with one and they're okay now. I've cured them. And I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 no. If they're saying that, it's because they want some supply of, you know, they're going back to their partner saying, I'm okay now. You know, it just doesn't happen. There is medication, um, you know, psychedelics and things that have been used on some narcissists and it helps minimize the level of abuse but not to the extent they would ever be able to capable of having a healthy relationship and the key thing is even with the medicalization of narcissistic personality disorder 
you know, and, and I read, in fact, I think I read it on Instagram this morning and it was saying, you know, oh, it's just this keyword all the time. People are saying, you know, but there's only 5% of the population that are narcissists. And I said, and I thought, well, that's because you need a narcissist to say they're a narcissist yeah. to go and get diagnosis in the first place and then, you know, then go, hey I think I'm a narcissist I need to go no, and get it. that's what's time it's like oh no they think that they're totally fine yeah right. that's, uh, it's just you gotta look at the people in the wake of around them and it's like oof yeah difficult um hey I've taken so much of your time thank you so much what an absolute pleasure chatting to you today so incredibly helpful and I'll definitely have to like <laughs> about one of these classes but thank you so much you're most welcome. Thank you.